to leave everything that is in me as a legacy to not only not only to my children and the old the older I get, the more my wife asked me, she said, why are you still going like you going? I said, because I, I still have a lot to do. Forget the mistakes I made. I just still have a lot to do because every morning I wake up, God gave me purpose. He gave me a reason to keep pursuing that thing he put in me. And I ain't going to, and my thing is, I'm not going to quit till God calls me home. I ain't going to do it. Purpose, baby. Purpose begets, uh, well, let's say purpose begets impact. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, Revolution? Welcome to the What's a Revolution show. So for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? We're still celebrating our four-year anniversary. Can you believe this? Four years ago, January of 2017, I got on the mic at WBOK. And as you know, because you've heard a couple of my guests so far, Guest number one, the voice of New Orleans, the consciousness of New Orleans, Oliver Thomas. And you've got to hear my boy, the controversial, the the intellectual, the internal, the internal consciousness of leadership, former Navy SEAL Jake Swig. But as we continue, look, as we continue this four-year anniversary tour, as I continue to bring on my favorite guest over the last four years, right? Guest number three or four, I had to think back. I had to go back and say, who did I want to interview? Whose story was so compelling that I needed to bring back to see where they were four years later? And I said, you know what? I'm going to bring my family back on with me. My cousin, that's right, Arthur C. Erskine Brown and his acclaimed book, A Cry Among Men. One of the best books that I have ever written. And I know you're going to say, Corpru, Dr. Corpru, that's your cousin. I don't really care. Let's, 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 let's move that out of the way, revolutionaries. If you get a chance, go, ahead, go out and pick this book up, A Cry Among Men. Because it, it really is a detailed story about the trivials, the trials and tribulations that even those who ascend to the highest levels of corporate to entrepreneurship to those highest ascended levels of leadership still go through trials and tribulations. There's still racism and discrimination that we experience. There are still brick walls that we have to take the sledgehammer to break down. And this book, A Cry Among Men, is up there as one of the best books about the black male experience that goes on for us. All the way down to the nitty gritty of relationships, right? The ascension to the corporate level, working your way up. I don't even want to spoil the book for y'all. It is an amazing book, and this is an amazing author. And so I wanted to bring back the man, <laughs> the myth, my cousin, right? The acclaimed author, C. Erskine Brown. Dear brother. Guys, what are you? How are you? I'm good, brother. How you doing? <laughs> oh, a dope introduction, man. I feel like, you know, that's Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, if anybody, look, if anybody reads this book and, you know, the last time we talked about it, you know, I, I had just, we had, I just, <clears throat> excuse me, I had just got the book 
And I wasn't able to read it all at our first conversation. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it this conversation. But I, I remember because I, I read the entire book as I was going to on my European tour. You know, let me let me let me mm. <laughs> let me humble brag for a second here. You know what I'm saying? There you go. I was on my European tour with my good friend Derek, uh, Derek Greenfield. And on the way back, I had been reading the book. And it, uh, there was a nine hour flight from London to London to Charlotte. And I read the I read the entire book in nine hours from London to Charlotte. And man, let me tell you, this book is riveting. This book is eye opening. This book this book will make you cry. It will make you think about your own experiences. If you are a man of color, if you're a black man, what it means to sit in these spaces where you're lauded in one respect and you know, taking advantage of. And that's, that's all I'll say. And, and <laughs> that's all I'll say in that respect. You got to go read this book. Yeah, right? Yeah, you got to, I'm telling you, go get a cry, my man. You don't know, bruh, how many people have picked up that book on my coffee table because that's where it stayed. They're like, can I borrow this book? Right, right. They've read the book and come back to me and be like, damn. Right. Like, is this what happens? Is is is, is this, is this depiction, this, 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 analogy that's what we would say this analogy is this what happens to black men i'm like yes this is actually what happens to black men and so i want to pull back here i want to pull back because i don't even know we talked about it the last time but what was the impetus for you writing this book this acclaimed book of cry among men Uh, we 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 touched briefly on it um but i was in you know, you know, I was in corporate sales for a long time, almost 30 years. Um, transitioned out of that probably, I don't know, almost 10 years ago because I just was tired and I, I wanted to focus on the writing. Dumb on taking a hell of a pay cut that I had to do. Um, when I was going through and just about not every company, but just about every company that I worked for because of the way I am and because of the way I, you know, Charlie Brown, <laughs> because of the way I present myself, very honest, very open, very go get it kind of kind of guy. If I saw something that was off, whether you were my boss or not, I'll let you know mm. something wasn't right. And I was told very early by my father, dude, you, you don't have enough hours to be telling your boss when he's wrong. I said, but if he's wrong, he's wrong. And he always told me, he said, well, just let me just say this to you. If you're going to get in there, in there and, and battle, you just got to be prepared for whatever, whatever that outcome might be. And I tell my children my two grown girls and my son who's in college is the exact same thing. If you if you want to engage in a fight with your boss, just get prepared for the fallout. So I was going through a situation where I pretty much had called my boss out. I straight up called him a racist. He and he and human resources came to Newark. I was living in Piscataway at the time. They came to Newark. Met me at a hotel. He bought HR with him. This was a company out in Indiana. Um, and we had this chat about me and my performance and our relationship and so forth. And I told him straight to his face, you're a racist. You know, and I didn't bat an eye. And he turned red. The, the woman who was with him, she turned red. 
And I said, because I am a black man, at the time I was 31, and because I've been on this earth 31 years, I told him just like that, I can spot a racist a mile away. And he looked at me. 10 minutes after that conversation, after I said that the meeting was over, he never bothered me again. Long story short, I've had to have those kind of conversations with HR people, um, with managers, with reps. I've heard, heard the N-word on the job. And I was young still. 31 is still pretty young to be going at it with your boss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can go at it right now. And I don't give a damn. Say what you want to say. You know, I'm older than most of my bosses. So I, I, I was going through that. So I had this dream. I don't know if you remember, I had a dream that I, something happened to me and I did some research about, I had written another screenplay. Um, the book actually was a screenplay at first. Mm, it needs to be a movie. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a screenplay and it needs to be a movie. It became a screenplay after I did a little research and couldn't figure out why I had a dream like that. And after doing some research and talking to some people, probably it might even talk to a therapist. They said, basically, what you were going through spilled out in a dream. And mm. what actually happened kind of is just this whole great big metaphor. So I kind of fashioned it. And I, before I even jumped into it, I really thought about what that really meant as a black man. And... I started looking around. I started talking to a lot of cats that I knew who were in corporate. Most of the cats nice. I hung out with at the time nice. were in corporate. And they were all going through the exact same thing, man. And it's very objective in sales. It's not subjective at all. It's very, it's very objective. They go after your numbers. Even if the white boy's numbers are worse than yours, they, they look for a, a reason. They look for any little thing to, to come at you. So I wrote the screenplay. I sent it out to LA. A buddy of mine, now we'll say one of my one of my Israeli, my Jewish brothers, he loved it, fell in love with it. He said, man, we gotta make this. And he shot it around for me. Sent it to one of his counterparts who had a deal at Universal. And she read it. She called me maybe a week or two after she got it. And she says, Charles, I, I, I couldn't sleep for a week. I said, well, why not? She said, it was that impactful. It was that good. She says, if it were my dime, I would make this movie today. That was 31 years ago. Wait. That was 31 years ago. When I, when I wrote the screenplay, it was 31 years ago. Wow. So I set it on the shelf because nobody would touch it. She says, you basically described my boss, the, 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 the antagonist. You basically right. described my boss. He will never do this. And for our revolutionaries, when, when he's talking about you, you you've got to go because the depiction of this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, the depiction of this white boy in this, right, could be, the illumination, right? And it, let's put it to, to, to contemporary nature. It, it, it could be anybody that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. There you go. You know what I'm saying? 
the, the potential go. of that, right? Because what what we see when we're, when we're hearing angry people feeling like some things are being taken care, taking taken away from them, my rights are being taken care, of, our freedoms are being taken care of, right? What 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 the protagonist in this book, right? If you think about this, right, that boy is angry. <laughs> you take take away some freedoms perceived. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So he he thought he was entitled. And I'm not going to give away the story, but he thought he was entitled. But she told me, we'll never do this. She says, I will help you. She gave me a name of a guy Lifetime. I talked to him. It was way too much for Lifetime. I mean, everybody knows what they put on Lifetime. Yeah. So I pretty much put it on the shelf. I wrote a bunch of other screenplays. I got close, man. Several times I got close. What what about the projects? And then about... I don't know, 15 years ago, 13 years ago, I said, let me throw it out here. Let me look at it. Let me try to do something with it. I put in some contests. It did really well in contests. It didn't go first place, but second place, quarterfinals, semifinals, and quite a few major contests. And everybody kept bugging me to write a book. Write a book. I said, man, that is just too much freaking work. (laughs) I didn't want to write a book. I I didn't because a screenplay is 100 to 120 pages long. There is very little description. Um, there's very little setup. There is some setup, but I'm not going to describe um, Chaya's house in a screenplay <laughs> like I j- just described Chaya's house in my upcoming book. Right. I don't have that liberty. It's cut and dry. So... I decided to write the book. I tackled the book. I basically dropped the screenplay in a pro in, in a word format. I just copied it and dropped it in, and I built on it from there. Yeah. So what was a 115-page screenplay turned into a 260-page, 65-page book. And you and I talking. labored over it for I don't know two or three years. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm such a perfectionist, and and I just I'm, I'm going to let you off the hook right now. All those words that I used in the <laughs> I didn't I, this next book I got I caught so much hell behind the words. Let me tell you, bro. Let me, look, look, <laughs> revolutionaries. You need to know something. If, once you read that first book, and we're gonna get to we're gonna get to the second book. Once you read that first book, you will look. You will score at fifteen hundred at least look, when, a fifteen hundred for us, right? You'll score a perfect eight hundred on, on your SAT. You, you remember our SATs? You only it was only it was only verbal and math, right? You know, you look the linguistics right <laughs> in this book. In book number one in Cry Among Men, you, I had to have a dictionary beside me. I had to have, look, I had to pull it. What, what does this word mean? The eloquence of your diction here, dear brother. <laughs> right. But that, that comes from my instructing college. Mm. Tell me about he that. Was gonna, he was going to fail me when I was in school. I was an English major. He was going to fail me. He says, you can do better. I know you got more in you. He says, so instead of failing you, I'm going to give you an I. You come back and see me next year. I said, you got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> so he says, I want you to elevate your writing. He says, he literally told me, he said, I want you to get a thesaurus. And when you use a word, I want you to figure out a different way, a different word to use instead of that word. So what I did is I went on to be a teacher assistant after I left corporate. 
So they put me in English class, some English classes, and there were senior English classes. And while in those classes, while I was writing the book, there was, they were just throwing out, the teacher would put vocab words up every week. And you guys give me hell about those words, but 60 to 70% of those crazy words are vocabulary, 12th grade English vocabulary wow. words that I had never heard of. So I was writing them down. And they were like, Mr. Brown, you need to get off the phone. I'm like, y'all mind <laughs> your business. I'm taking vocab with y'all. The other 20% were kind of thesaurus words, taking the page from my my instructor's book. He says, look, man, elevate your words. Don't use it, you know. I have a, my, my, if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, uh, it's chased by words, at chased by words. And I've got some posts on there that say, don't hate me for my words. Mm-hmm. So in those, yeah, I've got some posts on there that said, don't hate me for my words. I like that. Don't hate me for my words. When I post, don't hate me for my words. I put the word in there that some of those words in there that I use and I give the definition and in the description, I, I, I write out what it actually says in the book and how it was used in the book. So like, give us an example. Give us an example. Of, you know, one of those huge words that you use. Like sagacious. Sagacious. Sagacious is, sagacious is a word. Um, um, which is a person who is worn and tattered. And basically he, 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 he had met a woman who had perfected tatterdomalian. She was homeless. So basically he'd met a woman who was worn down, was beat up. She, she was homeless. So she tattered, tattered a malian, um, and, and sagacious, um, and thraldom. And so don't hate me for my words. I love that. See, that should be, that should be a part of your, of your marketing, right? That that's the C. Erskine Brown way. I, I love that. <laughs> don't hate me for my words. You don't think about that. Yeah, you think about being able to put that into, you know, students as they're coming up. Don't hate me for my words, right? I mean, think about that as students or people are walking around the world. Don't hate me for their words. And you have a list of those words on the back. Uh, see, here I'm doing your marketing here. Right? There you go. So, so, so if anybody goes to at Chased by Words on Instagram, I probably have four or five posts up here because it's a new page for me. Yeah. I've got my, my old page, which I still use for family, for my scripture, for my cigars, and you know, all of the crazy stuff. But Chase by Words is strictly about writing. It's strictly about writing. It's strictly about my books. Uh, strictly about motivating uh, other, other writers uh, to continue. Because this is, man, this is a different kind of journey. Um, I listen to a lot of, I listen to your stuff and I listen to other podcasts about entre- entrepreneurship. It's different. It is a different. It is a different it's, it's, life. It's, it's different because a business owner, he's got. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say always a brick and mortar, but he's got a different perspective in terms of driving revenue. Um, I can only sell to the masses if they like my words. Yeah. Um, and. being self-published and not having that backing of a big 
big brand or big, like a like a Macmillan or or any of those other big Simon houses. Simon Schuster. Simon and Schuster, Hearst, um, Penguin, you know, so I'm kind of out here on my own. So I, 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 I use, I reference these platforms, um, Instagram, Facebook, all the book clubs that I've, I've, I've visited and Zoomed with. Um, I still sell books. I don't sell as many as I did when the book came out the first month or two. But every month I can look, I'm still selling books. Yeah. And believe it or not, it's slowly increasing. But I mean, if you go on there, you'll see reviews. I just posted another review just before I got on about this woman said she had never read anything like this before. And that's usually what people say. They've never read anything like it before. And everybody's saying they want it to be a movie. But honestly, the only way it can be a movie the only way it can get the attention, forget Hollywood. The only way it can get the attention of funding or directors is for the world to say, yo, y'all got to read see. this. Yes. And y'all got to put this out there. And we've been doing that. Yeah, we've been doing that for four years. And it continues. It, it continues to just, you know, haunt me. That book haunts me. It's supposed you know, to. Yeah, the book, the book haunts me. In a sense, because you as a writer with the with the the depths, that's what that's that's the word that I'll use. Mm-hmm. With the depths of how you bring up each character profile and mm-hmm. then how you weave those character profiles to tell a larger story line that is mm-hmm. that is one galvanized in the plot of the book. Right. But then has an overall understanding of what race and gender and racism and discrimination play play out in our country. And yes, this book is five or six years old for right, but that the, the premise of the book stays relevant and firm even today. Even today, as we sit here in 2021, modern in a pandemic, we're still hearing stories of what is happening as young black men, middle-aged black men, older black men are still lynched emotionally, right, right? in their experiences. I've had people tell me when it first came out that it was relevant, and I have people tell me now that it is even more even relevant. more relevant. Because if you look at what was going on, we're still going on, which is what you just said, and what was happening last year. Uh, I don't want to call any names because I don't want to leave anybody out. But at the end of the day, they don't give a damn about us. Mm. And I work at a school where they they wanted to do, um, they did some sensitivity training, Mm -hmm. and they asked for a review. (laughs) Um, And it was an anonymous review that that they asked for, and I, I pretty much lit them up, and I said, this is not this is you're not really you're really not talking about this thing the way it needs to be talked about. I got angry because every time I turn on the TV, every time I, I, I go to one of these trainings that is so watered down, every time I listen to 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 people talk, white folk talk about race and 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 how they how you know they you know, how they don't see it and I do. It just, it just, it just, it just takes me to another, another place. And, and it's not, you know, this book is about 
Do I want to sell books? Absolutely. But I believe in my heart. I, I say, I believe in my heart. God put this story in me to aid in some of the correction that needs to happen in this mm-hmm. world. Because the white folks that have read this book, they've said to me, I had no idea. Black men went through what, you, what you're talking about. They said, I had no idea. What's that? I said, that's the interesting thing when you go watch a knee on your neck. Right. <laughs> they said, I had no idea. I said, every brother that I, that I know, everyone without fail, even the one who wants to pretend he ain't a brother, will go through it. He's been, yeah, been through it. And <laughs> I don't want to belabor the point, but you're, you're, you're exactly right. You know, and what I do is I am, uh, continue to employ my revolutionaries. To, if you have not read this book, A Cry Among Men, go out and read it. Give it to your people. Give it as a gift, right? Give it to you. Look, give it to the people who you think actually really, really need to read it after you have read it, right? Right. Get, put it on your office desk, right? <laughs> put it on your office desk. When people ask you, what's that? Tell them the story. And why they need to read this. In my opinion, and we're going to move on after this. My opinion is that this book is such a watershed moment for us. It's a watershed moment. I, I think of Invisible Man. That's, that's what I think. I think of Invisible Man and, and this American classic. And what this story tells. And it, 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 it almost seems to be like in that genre. In that, in that lineage of Invisible Man. Because it just seems to be a, a heightened level that even in the 1950s when the book Invisible Man was written, right, this brother, the protagonist in this story, right, is still invisible in a sense and has to find his way out to illuminate the light. Please go out and read this story and this wonderful, wonderful book. But the question that I have, there's a couple things that I want to bring to the forefront is that... When I go looking for black male literary giants, is it me or are there not many of us out there writing about the black male experience or writing or, or writing and, and becoming literary giants? We, everybody, we can laud Ta-Nehisi Coates, but what I, when I go looking for literary giants that look like me and you, I'm not seeing a whole lot. What's stymieing us or am I missing something? You're asking me? Yes. Honestly, you you have to enjoy reading. And if you don't enjoy reading, you're not going to write. I hated reading as my bio. (laughs) said, ah, man, I couldn't stand it. But Vera Brown would not let me go outside Mm -hmm. unless I read for half an hour. So... When I read out of college, because I read so much in college as an English major, I read magazines, I read self-help books, I read business books, that's all I read. But stories, things that make you think. See, what I find is, and people have actually told me, they wanna read real life stuff, stuff that's gonna help them. And I, in turn, tell them, I said, well, this book is as real as it gets. It's fiction. But it's as real as it gets in terms of what really goes on. The metaphors that we, we that I point out that will help people, the world see. Um, 
But to answer your question, we, we have to enjoy reading. We have to. I love March Madness, but sometimes you <laughs> it's not like it was, but sometimes you just got to be able to put the remote down. Right. Sometimes you have to be able to do something other than whatever it is you do. And and what helped me write this book is reading Coates, is reading Baldwin, is reading even some white authors, reading, just reading, learning. Nobody taught me how to write a novel, but learning structure just by reading this stuff. Mm-hmm. Just how to use um tags and, and 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 quotations i read every i read so much stuff some excerpts some full books but you have to want to read and everybody has a story to tell everybody has a story to tell and and a lot of people probably don't want to write is because there's a lot of rejection in writing mm. Tell I go story. back and I look at the crime moment. I said, how the hell did I write this? <laughs> because I look at that and I look at what I'm working on now. My writing is leaps and bounds better to me. Uh, and, and every writer that I've ever listened to says that about their books, says that about their screenplay, says that about anything they've written. The next piece, the next projects gets better. They get better and they get better. So you got you have to you have to want to be able to take a lot of self doubt, a lot of rejection. There's a lot of there's a lot goes into writing in terms of understanding structure, understanding how to use words. If a lot of people don't know how to write, they just don't. I mean, if you read emails, if you if you read <laughs> people's emails, if you read people's text messages, they just they don't they don't care. It seem it would seem like writing has become a lost art. And that's why I think I asked the question that, you know, when I go out and and I ask that question because I want to I want to interview more black men, more men of color who are writing, you know, and I I know they're out there. Maya Acho with the uncomfortable conversations of a black man. Um, There are a a couple of author black male authors that are out there. But I would love I would love to see this right. This this litany of black men writing giants like Baldwin, like Coates. Right. That, as you said, we all have this tremendous story to tell. And so uh, I'm thinking, you know, and in, in, in asking this question, like if we all have a story to tell, what is going to be the, the, the catalyst for us to sit and write those stories? Because think about this. Think about a cry among men. You pick that book up and you see yourself within that story as a black man. You see yourself within that. I saw myself within that story. And, but there are other stories of us to tell. How do we, if I'm sitting, if I'm sitting here, I'm listening to this and I want to write this story. How do I even start? Right. You said, read, look at other literary giants, but then, okay, I've read, I've seen a style. What pushes me to start writing? Start writing. Just just, just go into your head and start taking notes. That's what I tell everybody. Just start. It was so bad when I was writing this book, no matter where I was, I either had my phone, which has an app on it for me to take notes, or I would text message myself notes, or I'd be out to dinner. I'd be dinner at home. I'd be in the car. I'd be at school. I I used to, every day during lunch, I would write. If the kids were taking a test, I'm writing. 
before school, I'm riding in the car. When I'm driving, I pull over on the side. Not, not a lot of people want to do that. That's a lot. You talk about practice. <laughs> That's a lot. You talk. I you mean, talk. I'm, and I'm driving. I'm driving two and a half hours to get to work, and I'm pulling over, taking notes, or no cars around me. I'm texting myself a note so when I get to work, I can put it on paper. Right. You got to basically be just like any other entrepreneur. You got to be. You got to be obsessed. You got to be obsessed. You think about that, and and, and revolutionaries hear that. When you find your passion, you have to continue to practice. Malcolm Gladwell talks about those 10,000 hours, right? You've got to practice. You've got to put the time in. Baldwin and Coates put the time in. They continue to write and write and write. LeBron continues to play and play and play. You think about that, young brothers and sisters, as you listen to this podcast with this acclaimed author, C. Erskine Brown, with his acclaimed book, A Cry Among Men, that for him to write ahead first to just get started, but then continue to write. Because what you said earlier so stands so much in the face of me, is that there's a lot of rejection in writing. There's just a lot of rejection in life. And... In saying that, is that if this is your passion, you will fail time and time and time again. The growth is in the discomfort, and I hate discomfort, but I sit in it. <laughs> There's an anxiety that goes along with it. Every time I get on here and I say, welcome to the Western Revolution Show, there's a tad bit of anxiety. There's a tad bit of imposter syndrome that comes into this. But after <laughs> yeah, 110 like shows, right, after practice... Right. After practice, after practice, after welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, it comes out a little bit more. It sounds a little bit better. We find our space and we're going to pop up one day and we're going to see this book and we're going to see. I'm going to ask you in a second. We're going to see the second book and we see the third book. Right. Because this author has said that I'm going to continue to practice. And even though self-publishing and there's nothing wrong with self-publishing revolutionaries. Nothing wrong. Just because you may not have Hearst or Simon and Schuster behind you. I think about Rich Roll and his uh, unnatural conversations and self-published. Practice. Put your passion in front of you and keep moving. Dear brother, our time is running short. I want to ask this question. So a cry among men is out. What's next? Cloud over Southampton. Ooh. <laughs> every character, every character is flipped on their head. Every character. Everybody but Craig. Everybody but Craig. Uh-oh. Everybody else is like, what? <laughs> I even just want to know. Even Don. Yeah. I'm going to get back to that, but let me just say something to, to what you were just saying. I put a post up the other day, yesterday, the day before you said, write like it is your only legacy. That's how you have to do it. Write like it's your only legacy. Mm. So when you get on the page, you have to go to it, go at it like, in other words, so those words will live on. I, I, I love that. Write like this is your only legacy. 
That's how deep you got to get into. That's how you, right. And you think about this because in, in this stage of digitization, things are memorialized much quicker than they ever have been. You can write those notes, snap a picture, post it on Instagram, and it's going to be there, right, in perpetuity. Right. So what is your legacy? We think about Coach. We think about Baldwin, right? We think about that their works have been more. We're quoting them. We're talking about them. Now, Coach is our contemporary Baldwin Right, but we're still quoting Baldwin. We're still living in the the breaths and words of James Baldwin and the impact of that. That's his legacy. That's so deep, man. That's so deep. (laughs) You know, and and thinking thinking about that, if I ask, I wonder if I I could go back. Wouldn't that be, that would be bold here, dear brother. If I could go back and say, James Baldwin, what's your revolution? Right? And he could eloquently say, my revolution here, Dr. Corporal, is to leave my words for the next generations to come, that they would be a beacon of light for those who come after me, even in the midst of racism and discrimination, dear brother, that my words would be that guiding beacon of light, that they would move through the spaces, (laughs) (laughs) that they would move through the spaces much easier because of my words, because that will be my legacy. Dear brother, that is. And interesting. I didn't mean to shift. I didn't mean to shift. But the next book is about everybody. It's just real different. Yeah, yeah. And no, so the interesting different. When I say different, you find out all the dirt about who they really are. Well, I, I, I cannot wait. In the first book. Yeah, I cannot wait because you got to read the first book. Got right. To. And we're not going to wait 33 years later to see what the sequence, the, the sequel is. Right. And we know that the sequel is not going to, right. The night, the sequel is not going to be right. Um, the sequel is going to be just as good as the first. We go, we, we won't, we won't put any hating. Uh, right. Um, but the interesting thing, because you, you're going to read, you're going to get to the last lines of that first book. Right. Which is so, so interesting. Right. Because the, Something, something is going to happen that's really going to intrigue you, right? You put that, you put that little nugget in that last piece of that book, right? So I'm wondering how that relationship plays out in the new book. You know, don't break your heart, boy. Oh no, don't break my heart. Don't, don't break my heart because you know what? That was the one. That was the one thing about the book is that you gave just a tease of that relationship. You did just a tease, and all of a sudden at the end it pops back up, and you're like, what? You gonna do me like that? All I can say, all I will say, is the women who love Don so much. I mean, they just love this man. They might not love him so much. <laughs> well, well, you know, dear brother, I appreciate this. I I, I need I to ask it. you. Yeah, I yeah. need to ask you this question, our signature question, and I know you can go back revolutionaries and look answer and see how this brother answered this question four years ago. But C. Erskine Brown, acclaimed author of his first book, A Cry Among Men, what's your revolution? Again, just like I, I to leave everything that is in me as a legacy mm. to not only not only to my children. And the old, the older I get, the more my wife asked me, she said, why are you still going like you're going? I said, because I, I still have a lot to do. Forget the mistakes I made. I just still have a lot to do because every morning I wake up, God gave me purpose. 
He gave me a reason to keep pursuing that thing he put in me. And I ain't going to, and my thing is, I'm not going to quit till God calls me home. Mm. I ain't going to do it. Right. Purpose, baby. Purpose begets, uh, well, let's say purpose begets impact. That was another post. Purpose begets impact. Let your words, let the word, look. Let the words that you're right, let you write, be your legacy. Yeah. Revolutionaries, you've heard a masterpiece, as always. Appreciate you, brother. No, I appreciate you. I love you, my dear cousin. You know, love you too. Yeah, man. And look, as you see this, brother, right? He is my older cousin, but he don't look like it. <laughs> he, he, is my, he is my older cousin. He still got a hairline. He, got, he must have got the, look, he got his father's line. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You got it. You got his father's line. Look at all that. Look at all the great and and revolutionaries. Look, y'all be happy because this dude is a kappa. He is not a Q. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He is a kappa. Noob to the noobs out there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you always say. I don't shimmy though. I'm sorry, oh, y'all. You're too old. This, I don't shimmy. <laughs> no, you too old. This brother is doing his thing, and I appreciate you, brother. Revolutionaries, I hope that you are doing well. The lights are coming. The light is coming. Spring is coming. I walked out of my house today. I walked out of my parents' house, and there there were buds on the trees. And you know what happens when there are buds on the trees? That means that there's a renew, there's a renewal, there's a rejuvenation, that life begins again. Spring. And so I'm asking you, revolutionaries, to think about what is your renewal, what is your re- rejuvenation, what is your revolution? Because this is our time. This is a time where we ask ourselves this question, how do we get better? How do we take what has happened over the last 13 months and grow? And Steve Harvey said that we are still here and we need to make the most of our time here because many of our brothers and sisters are not here with us. They don't have that time that we have. And so to make the most of their lives, we need to make the most of our lives revolutionaries. So I wish you well. As you know, go and check us out everywhere. What's your revolution? And if you need some help, we are here for you. Go check out Sierskin Brown. Buy that book. Give it to your friends. Keep it as a as a marker of where we should not be. And as a bastion of a pathway for where we need to go. Take care, revolutionaries, and always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Peace, everyone. Peace. Much love, brother. Peace. Peace. Peace.